Hi everyone, this is Andreas and Michael from Cloud on Out. And this is the first time for so long like <laughs> that we are on a show together. I'm so excited about this. So we are starting a new weekly Cloud on Out show. We are naming it Hot of the Cloud. And um, this weekly show is all about um, AWS news, our lessons learned, and as well, your questions. Okay, Michael, so I would like to start um, with the AWS news. So uh, we are looking back at the uh, last week, and um, we are looking into um, what AWS has announced. We are not going through all the announcements. We are going through those announcements that we find uh, interesting, and we have some notes or some insights into those as well. The announcement is, Amazon Data Lifecycle Manager now automates archival of EBS snapshots. <laughs> so, and I was wondering, okay, what is this all about? So I was uh, looking into that, like I always do when I scroll through the news. And so first of all, the Amazon Data Lifecycle Manager is actually the EC2 Data Lifecycle Manager because it's only about um, EBS snapshots, AMI, stuff like that. So that's the first misleading name here. And then we all know EBS snapshots. So, Michael, we have, I don't know, we have been doing a lot of snapshots in, our <laughs> in the past few years, right? So this is very basic stuff. Um, but then, uh, some time ago, AWS announced um, an archive feature for EBS snapshots. So basically, that's a way you can maybe, I would say, so that's the, the marketing side says, uh, it's, it allows you to um, lower your costs for EBS snapshots because you're putting them on cold storage. So I don't know, think of it like Glacier Deep, Deep Archive, something like that in the background probably. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's what this is about. So why is it interesting? So the standard price for an EBS snapshot, I looked that up, is uh, $5 cents per gigabyte per month. And with um, EBS Snapshots Archive, it's um, 1.2 uh, uh, US dollar cents per gigabyte per month. So that's a significant um, difference. Um, so cutting price by, I don't know, four times, something like that. Uh, so that might be interesting. Okay. So then I looked into what is this um, EBS snapshot archive <laughs> all about. So how does that work? And basically the first thing I stumbled upon is, that's very interesting. So usually when we do EBS snapshots and you're snapshotting a volume multiple times, you are only um, storing the difference. So you're only storing the, yeah, an incremental, you're doing only incremental backups for the volume, right? Um, so that means when your volume, when the data on your volume doesn't change, a lot. Also, the storage you need for additional snapshots of the same volume um, is not that um, significant. But if you use EBS Snapshots Archive, you're doing every time you're doing a full snapshot. So you don't have any incremental snapshots anymore, um, which means I would say you can even um, um, increase your, <laughs> your costs. <laughs> for EBS backups because if you have a lot of data that is changing over time and you're doing um, a snapshot archive uh, or storing it as an archive, you're at the end paying more than that. If it's possible at least, so at least if the data changes very frequently. So yeah, I think this is a big warning <laughs> about um, the way the snapshot archive works and I think the, the use cases are probably... 
I don't know, Michael, what do you think about it? But I think probably most scenarios, the data on the volume doesn't change too much. So I would assume be very careful with uh, using that uh, method to reduce your costs. Um, okay. And um, then um, I looked into what, what does the data lifecycle manager do? So basically the, the announcement is that the data lifecycle manager now Uh, this is a or a feature, I would say, of EC2 that you can use to create snapshots of an instance or of a certain volumes. So basically what it does, you configure a schedule and then it just takes a snapshot, uh, a crash-consistent snapshot. So I think it's totally useless, but okay. Um, it's, it's doing that and it's taking snapshots and um, but the feature that they uh, added here is that you now configure the data lifecycle policy in a way that it archives the snapshots after a certain amount of time or it archives um, the snapshots, uh, a, a certain number of snapshots that it keeps around. So that's basically um, what this is all about. Mm, Michael, does, does a question come to your mind when you hear about the data lifecycle manager that I described here? Does that sound familiar, that feature set? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's somehow kind of overlaps with AWS Backup. Um, yeah. But um, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, so, so I think I it was, was there wondering before AWS Backup, but I'm not. I'm not thing. sure. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't think it's a, uh, it has been around too long because I think it's also more a newish kind of feature. Yeah, I, okay. I wonder what, what this is all about because AWS Backup is, I would say, doing more or less the same thing. And I don't really get why we need two different services for that. Bec maybe because they had two pizzas, so they needed two teams. <laughs> I don't know. Is that <laughs> so work on the same so stuff? We don't care. I don't team. know. Maybe there is a good reason. I don't know. Uh, I haven't heard any good reason. Uh, I was asking around uh, about that on Twitter today. Yeah, okay. But yeah, okay. Nevertheless, so AWS Backup on the other side does not support any cold storage for EBS snapshots. It supports it for other services um, that it backups, but not for EBS. So it's not integrating with the archival feature for EBS snapshots yet. So, okay. Yeah. So I don't know. I would say overall the whole announcement, probably the whole feature of EBS snapshot archives is probably not too interesting to most of us. Probably only in very, very rare cases where you, yeah, I don't know. Um, have <laughs> data that changes very, very frequently and you have to keep it around for a long time, stuff like that. Maybe then this is an interesting announcement for you, but uh, yeah, it's also very, I don't know, a little um, interesting uh, to go through all that. But but I'm glad, Andreas, that you looked into it. So Because that's always the problem with AWS news, right? So sometimes there there is something that is really significant and sometimes it's not really significant for your workload. So Yes, thanks for all the details. Um, the the one that I picked uh, next, the uh, news item that I picked, is very tiny. And it actually is that uh, you can now change the AWS support plan without uh, using the root user. So there is basically IAM permissions for doing that. So I think there are three new IAM actions um, for the, I think the service name is support plans or something. And you basically now can change the support plan um, as a like, standard um, IAM user or role if you have the permissions. And they also made some changes to the UI. So I, I hadn't looked into the new UI because, I mean, that's not really... I mean, you use this basically once and then you never change, uh, touch it again. 
But um, the IM thing is definitely, um, I think, cool because this was always something that you have to do when you set up accounts, um, log in mm. with the root user to enable the support plan. But that kind of is still, what, what still is missing, even with this announcement, is that there is still, I mean, in every account you have to enable the support plan. So there's no organization support. And so it's, I think, maybe step one in that direction. Maybe we will see something here in uh, the near f uh, future. Um, yeah. The next. So, Michael, I have one item, question. I have yeah. one question on that. So, did so did you say that they created a new service namespace for the IAM actions? Yes. Ah, okay. Yes. Of course, I was wondering how do they <laughs> achieve that without um, breaking anything? Um, because maybe someone has I don't know support asterisk, yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, the next news item is uh, interesting for everyone that uses Systems Manager. And basically, what we can now do is we can stop an automation, a run command, a state manager, or maintenance window based on a CloudWatch alarm. So you can configure a CloudWatch alarm, and if that alarm goes off, so if it's in the alarm state, it stops the automation or the run command tasks or the state manager or the maintenance window. So the like example from the AWS docs is that if you have a maintenance window that patches all your instances, And you realize by looking at the CloudWatch alarm that the application is uh, down because, I don't know, maybe the patching is not working or it just patches all the instances into a state where they're not working anymore. You can basically stop uh, the whole um, update process. Um, and if you are similar, uh, familiar with the fault injection simulator uh, service, it's very similar concept. They also have the way to uh, kind of configure an AWS alarm. And if that alarm goes off, it stops the experiment. So that's kind of the same functionality in SSM now. Which is, I think, quite cool uh, because now we have an integrated way to kind of stop that. I think before that you had to look at the Cloud.com yourself and kind of trigger all the API calls yourself and now it's kind of embedded. Um, I, I have no details about how often does SSM check the Cloud.com, something like this. So there's not much documentation about it, at least what I um, saw. Um, maybe that is added later. But yeah, still, I think, a nice little feature if you're using SSM. Okay, so Michael, do you think... So we are using SSM for from time to time to, I don't know, patch instances and stuff like that. Do you think we can make use of it? Or Because I was wondering a little bit, so uh, it probably takes quite a lot of time until the CloudWatch alarm fires that is monitoring an instance and an application running on that. So do you think this is... Uh, something we could build into our systems or do you think so it's... I don't think so because we, we have no EC2 instances that, that serve traffic. So we just have, I think we have maybe one or two EC2 instances um, that do some background tasks like one does uh, the claim AV mirror syncing. But there's no CloudWatch alarm that, that goes off if it kind of breaks. There is a CloudWatch alarm, but this is in S3. So basically with the S3 replication, but, but we've attacked that much too late, so um, the patching is already done at this time. Um, so I, I, I don't think we have a good use case for it, but if you use it like in front, like for EC2 instances that are in front of a load balancer, then you could just look at the healthy, um, how's it, healthy host count metric uh, or something mm -hmm. like this, and then I think it would make sense. I mean, if it's only just a very few number of instances, it's probably too late until it stops, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So, Michael, um, yes, thanks for looking into that. <laughs> I, I skipped that part. Um, but I, I did another one um, um, got my attention, and this was the announcement of the 
general uh, availability of Amazon file cache. So this sounded great. So <laughs> I was um, reading a lot of uh, tweets and I thought, uh, okay, let's look into um, what this is all about. And um, yeah, so I checked it out. And um, so, yeah, what can I say about it? So first of all, um, the f Amazon file cache is part of the um, um, FSX uh, services. So those are... Um, things where you can get a Windows file server, open um, CFS, NetApp, stuff like that. So basically more advanced or more legacy, I don't know how to call them, so, uh, or a more, um, yeah, more fine granular ways um, for uh, storage systems on AWS. Maybe let's say it like that. And um, so I was first, um, in, so in my, in my head, my first model in my mind was um, that this is just another um, FSX file system, so like a Windows file server or something. Um, but then I um, got into the details. So what is um, Amazon File Cache all about? So it's part of that service, but it's not a file system. They call it a cache. So it's a little um, different. Uh, the concept is a little different. And um, so the file cache um, is basically a caching layer for either um, S3 or an NFS share. Um, so that could be uh, NFS in your on-premises environment or on AWS. And S3, okay, that's the, the service um, that AWS um, uh, provides for storing objects. So and that's basically a caching layer in front of that. And what you get, okay, it's, as the name implies, it's caching uh, the data. So you get, as af after the thing is in cache, you have fast access to that. And also what you get is... Um, uh, POSIX interface. So basically, um, the operating system can access um, those things um, in a way like it handles other um, volumes or other file uh, storage systems. Um, the whole thing is based on, I hope I pronounce it correctly, Luster, um, it, which is an open source distributed parallel file system. And it basically um, wraps S3 and NFS in the background and Act as a cache in between. So to get things running, you need to install this Lustre client on your EC2 instances or wherever you want to use the whole thing. Um, so this is a, a requirement to get that working. And then I think what probably the interesting part of it is you have a, a central caching layer. So there are other systems that do similar things, Michael. You have, I think we sometimes we touch those S3 file systems that then have caches on local disk and stuff like that, and they work more or less um, not so well, <laughs> typically, to, to access files on S3. I think the interesting part here is that you have a centralized caching layer. So all systems connect to the same caching layer, and so you can invalidate the cache, log files, stuff like that. So that's maybe uh, an interesting approach. Uh, so I found that um, quite interesting. Um, for use cases where EC2 instances need to access files stored on S3. So I think we, in, in, in multiple use cases, we have been in situations where that would be uh, interesting, mostly when it comes to uh, migrating legacy applications, stuff like that. That might be an interesting feature. <clears throat> okay, so I was very excited about this service and I um, looked a little bit little deeper into uh, the details and then I checked the pricing because that's often <laughs> things come to an end so the full fun stops there but but pricing is 
I would say it's quite interesting. So you, you just pay for the storage. So you pay for the storage that you provision for your cache. Okay, sounds fine. I, th I don't know. It's um, uh, $1.33 uh, per gigabyte per month. I don't know. I don't know. I don't care. It's, it doesn't seem too, too important. Um, but then <laughs> I tried to spin up a cache uh, myself. I just wanted to try it. And then I stumbled upon something. The minimum cache size is 1.2 terabytes. <laughs> okay, so now <laughs> you do the math, <laughs> and this ends up costing you uh, a minimum um, 1,600 US dollars per month <laughs> So to spin up the whole thing. So I don't think this is something um, for small legacy applications that you want to transfer to AWS. I think this is really for, yeah, I don't know, huge... Um, huge legacy applications and you just want to have a caching layer in front. Probably the use case for this is um, you want to have, you want to fix a problem um, <laughs> where the system is too slow and you're just adding a cache and no one cares uh, about the costs. Maybe, maybe that's the use case for the product. I don't know. Um, yeah, it is a little, this was a little uh, a downer um, that this is not really um, probably interesting for most of us. Um, yeah, but still, uh, maybe interesting to know that this option uh, is around. And by the way, you can use it in in any way. So you can use it either from EC2. They say you can use it from containers, okay, because you can just um, uh, encapsulate that into your container image. Uh, you could even use it from on-premises as well. So that's also um, a scenario that uh, AWS has in mind for that. So yeah, so when you... I think address the, the scenario on-premises is kind of the other way around. So if you access on-premises data from AWS, you could use the file cache in between, as far as I understand. Mm -hmm. But maybe yeah. you can use it the other way around. Yes, well. that's that's another... I think that's a, I think all those scenarios are valid. Yeah. Okay. I think, yeah, it's just a, a caching layer in between. Probably nice. it makes more sense uh, to use the cache on AWS side because then you benefit from the the latency and the network, the network latency and stuff. Yeah, that mo makes more sense probably. You're right. <laughs> okay. So let's have a short break. So I think that's all the news, right, that, that um, we have in mind for this week. And it's already like a big list of, of things. Um, so let's have a short break. And if you are looking for a new job, um, the good news here is that AWS expertise is in high demand. And we have two partners looking for AWS experts. Um, the first partner is TechRacer and they are hiring cloud consultants um, focusing on AWS and DevOps. So um, you should apply when you like building infrastructure as code and containers, for example. You um, join TechRacer in one of these locations. So they are in Germany, Hanover, Duisburg, Frankfurt, Hamburg and Munich. They are in Austria, Vienna, and in uh, Portugal, Lisbon, and in Switzerland, Lucerne. I think that are all the cities here. And also, our second partner, Demicon, is hiring a senior lead full-stack developer. And this is a remote position, uh, but you have to be based in the EU. And your favorite technology sh stack should include things like JavaScript or TypeScript, Angular or React. And of course, it should also include AWS, right? So that is something that all our positions have in common. So if one of these uh, sounds interesting to you, check out the show notes and you will find links to the positions and also some details um, there um, on uh, what uh, our partners here have uh, uh, to offer you. So um, 
let's dive into the next section. So that's the lessons learned section. So this is where we share uh, basically one or two things that we learned about AWS in the past uh, week. And this week, um, Andreas has learned something new that he wants to share with us, right? Yes, absolutely. So Michael, I was diving a little into EC2 auto recovery. <laughs> so Michael, do you remember how things worked um, in the beginning with EC2? Do you remember um, what was the thing we always told students starting with AWS? Can you give us a short summary? So uh, I don't know if it's the beginning, but the, 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 the thing that I remember is that there is a CloudWatch metric. It, I, th I don't remember the exact name, but it's something like um, if the instance is basically healthy or not. And you can create a CloudWatch alarm on that metric. And if it turns to one, you can trigger a recovery action. And that was kind of the way to migrate a EC2 instance off to another host if things break on the host where it was running. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so by default, in the past, AWS was not recovering failed EC2 instances. So whenever the, I don't know, the underlying hardware, the virtualization layer would ever failed, your instance just failed and was in a failed state and did not recover automatically. So what you could do is you could create a CloudWatch alarm and uh, use a special metric um, and then use that to recover the instance, which basically meant um, launching the same instance on another uh, machine. Then, um, recently, AWS announced um, simplified automatic recovery. Um, and they announced that they enable that for all instances, new instances and existing instances by default. You can opt out of that feature if you want to. You don't have to uh, use that feature, but by default it's on for all the instances that are running. Simplified automatic recovery means AWS, that's the, the promise, uh, will automatically recover your instance after failure. You don't have to care about that anymore. It's basically happening automatically out of the box. This sounded great. And I was, um, while I was reworking a chapter in our book, AWS in Action, I was just um, diving a little into uh, the details <laughs> of that. And then I stumbled upon a detail in the AWS documentation. <clears throat> because there, um, AWS says um, that either service health dashboard events or events that impact the underlying rack of an EC2 instance will lead um, to the fact that the simplified automatic recovery will not take place and you will not even get notified about that at all. <laughs> so that's, that's written in the documentation. Was, oh, that sounds cool. So if, if shit hits the fan, it just stops working and they do nothing with my machine. Um, they announced that feature. Okay, cool. But I can really make use of it. Uh, okay, cool. Very cool. Uh, okay, on the other hand, it maybe makes a little sense because how would you... So in, in, in reality, what happens if, if you suffer a huge, a huge outage in a data center? It's, of course, not possible that you, uh, at the same second, replace, I don't know, thousands of machines. That's just not happening, right? So, so I think it makes sense that it's not working, but maybe you shouldn't promise that it will work um, at the first place. Um, so that is what I, I learned about. So, yeah. So the simplified automatic recovery will basically only work if only a single instance or very few instances are affected by the outage and not if the whole rack or 
um, yeah, more instances are affected at the same time. Cool. Okay. And then um, I was checking uh, on that uh, today by, for preparing for this show again, and uh, I was reading through documentation once again, and uh, later they say, and even for CloudWatch action-based recovery uh, events, we are not 100% sure if we really can um, fulfill <laughs> your, your needs uh, in case of a larger outage. And of course, that makes sense, because if you think about larger outages that we have all observed, typically not only one AWS service is affected. So if EC2, for example, effect is affected, it affects other uh, AWS services as well. And it's, of course, possible that, for example, CloudWatch stops working and the whole firing of the action is not um, taking place correctly. So, yeah, this is just... Um, a, probably it's just a disclaimer, basically, that this functionality might not work uh, in reality. But overall, what I think... <coughs> of course, I don't know exactly, but what I get from the documentation is it still makes sense to define your CloudWatch alarms to trigger the recovery action, instead on relying on the simplified automatic recovery because chances are that this um, might work better in the end um, than right now. So I think that's maybe uh, the learning that I take away from that. So easy to auto-recovery. We're still doing it the old-fashioned way with CloudWatch alarms and we're ignoring uh, the simplified automatic one, I would say, um, at least for machines that we care about. <laughs> Okay, Andreas, I, I see. And I think that like the downside is that you have to pay for the CloudWatch alarm. I think that's our, like the only costs that are attached uh, to this kind of workaround okay. that you suggested. Okay. So that's okay, right? It's maybe fine, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for a little bit more liability. Um, okay, maybe if someone from AWS watches that's had, that's, that has more insights into that, I would be really interested into uh, the real details here. So uh, let me know. Okay. All right. Um, so we are um, approaching the last section uh, of this show, and this is um, Ask Cloud or Not. So this is here for all your questions um, that you want to send to Michael and me. Uh, you can send in questions uh, whenever you like. Use the hashtag Ask Cloud or Not, send us an email, uh, DM, what have you. Or, of course, if you have joined the live stream, you can uh, ask your questions um, right now in the chat. And... Um, I will start. So it's always good to have a starting point, right? Um, so the first question that I have is um, coming in from uh, Xavier, and he has written in a few days ago, and he asks, um, in a previous article about um, the limit of 25,000 events, you mentioned that you're using step functions to list objects within an S3 bucket. And I was wondering if you could share some details on this. So, Michael, this is a question for you. You have written about that. Um, tell us about what was the problem, what's the whole thing about, why are you using step functions, what are you doing there? Give us a, an overview of the whole thing, please. Yeah, I was just sending the link to the post into the chat so we can also attach this to the show notes later. Um, so, basically, the problem is that in a step function execution, you can have, um, well, there is a limit of uh, 25,000 uh, so-called history events. Um, so, the problem is, um, what is a history event is actually not so easy to understand because what we as a like uh, creator of a step function state machine um, use or interact with are states and state transitions. So we don't really know about history events. And my, my, my very first idea of step functions is that each state transition adds up to this limit by uh, one. 
So if I have one state transition, it counts as one history event. Turns out that's not correct. So that was the pitfall that I was running into because um, lots of state transitions have uh, or, or kind of issue, for example, three history events or even seven or something. And that's why I was running into the limit because my mental model was wrong. So I was my assumption was that each state transition is one history event, but that's not true. Okay, so the first thing you have to understand is that each state or each task that you execute, each task type um, emits a different amount of history events. And uh, I have a couple of examples in the blog post if you're interested in. So for example, a Lambda function, um, which is I think the one that I use um, most often um, uh, is a, a task state type and that uh, usually emits five history events, but it's not documented and not kind of guaranteed. I don't know what happens if there are come strange errors and things like that. Okay, so that was the problem. And my use case was that I was um, listing all the objects in an S3 bucket, and this includes all versions in a bucket. And this should work for uh, up to 100 million objects in an object, uh, sorry, in a bucket. And, and that's why I was running into the limits. And in the blog post, I have two kind of strategies that you can apply to kind of work around the limit. Uh, the one is from AWS, the recommended uh, one from AWS is to kind of, like if you approach the limit, launch a new step function execution, and I'm always a little bit skeptical about those solutions because it's very easy to kind of create an infinite loop and kind of have a very big AWS bill at the end of the month <laughs> or the end of the day, depending on your implementation. Um, so the approach that I kind of suggest if it's doable um, is that you increase the kind of task size in each batch that you basically run. So in my case, I first started with listing 1,000 objects in a kind of page or in a state and this is like the default that's returned by S3 and then I changed my implementation to kind of like one function actually loads a couple of pages in this case I think 1000 pages or something which still executes within reasonable amount of time which is like 30 seconds or something so well below the uh, um, length of limit um, and, and so those are the kind of strategies that, that you can uh, use to kind of work around the limit and now my implementation should work for up, up to, I think, 250 million objects or something, which is not, I mean, you can have infinite amount of objects in a bucket, so it's not working for all buckets, but for all the buckets that, that my solution has to work for um, so far, it is working. And I think for other solutions, I wouldn't recommend using step functions because you pay for the list calls in S3. And I actually, like all my testing and implementation, I think it the, the bill was kind of, at the end of the month and this account was um, added, I think I added $1,000 to the bill at the end of the month or something, uh, just because I made so many API calls to the S3 API. So I think if you really have to list more uh, or larger buckets, then you can use, I think it's called the inventory or something, S3 inventory. It's like a, a big report or multiple files that are reported by S3 that list all the objects in a big file uh, or multiple files. I think that is then the better option to get all the files. What's the reason for implementing a listing S3 objects oh, with yeah. step functions <laughs> from the first place? <laughs> I think that was the sorry. original uh, question. Oh, so I forgot about that. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, so what we, we do is we offer a product. It's called Bucket AV. It's an uh, antivirus solution for Amazon S3. And what we have is real-time scanning. So if a new file is added, it is scanned. Um, we also have this feature where you can scan a bucket at regular intervals. So for example, every week, every month, or every day, if you wish, um, you can scan all the files in the bucket because the virus definitions update a um, couple of times each day. So it, even if you scan all the files when they arrive, it could be that uh, one file went through 
but then you will catch it maybe one week later when the virus database uh, is updated and now contains the uh, the new definition for this new um, uh, threat that that arrived in the meantime. So that's what kind of the the, the background here. Um, so that's why we have to list all the files. Um, but I, I can imagine there are other scenarios where you basically want to list all the files. Um, maybe you just want to do some um, cleanup of access control list like the old stuff um i think there are like all, also other ways to do that but um yeah sometimes you have to go through all the files and and in this case i do this very regularly or our customers do this very regularly so most of them use it i think weekly and so this has to be like from a cost perspective it has to be as uh, efficient as possible and it also has to cover all the like bucket range bucket size ranges that that our customers have and it turns out that like uh, more than uh, a handful of customers want to scan buckets with lots of files, like hundreds of millions of files per day. And so that's why we have to, or why I changed this implementation. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Thank you for the explanation, Michael. And yes, we definitely have a question in the chat. Uh, thanks, JJ. And by the way, Anton, also hi. <laughs> nice to see you here. Um, JJ writes in random question, How would you go about implementing a multi-region um, and possible serverless grown job on AWS? For example, if you had to run a million grown jobs regularly and only wanted to run each once. <laughs> Michael, this is a <laughs> this is a tricky one. <laughs> Do you have the, the 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 funny story here is that I actually had a very similar question from a customer, and this was a couple of years ago, and The, the only thing that was not included was the multi-region thing. It was just, they wanted to run it in a single region. And mm -hmm. this is a very hard problem. And I don't think that there's a good solution on AWS to build this thing, even mm -hmm. if it's not multi-region. And it there is no service for that. I think the, there's really a cron job service missing in AWS. I mean, we have EventBridge, but mm -hmm. it's not really for, I mean, it's for, you can have a couple of, of rules, but not like, millions like this um mm -hmm. uh, like that uh, jj wants to to implement yeah. and yeah I, i think there are a couple of questions that are needed before we can really answer this and i don't think there's a good answer to the question so that's yeah the, the that's, first, that's um, first thing but one question would be what's the like the minimum interval and what's the longest interval the cron job will run like is it like the minimum is a minute uh, a day or maybe five every five minutes and this up to 10 years or 100 years and depending on all of those factors it gets really hard and mm. so what i did back then was i used step functions because with step functions you can wait for free like waiting time is i mean it's a state transition you pay for it once but not for the duration and The problem is you cannot have one million state um, uh, executions running at the same time. So this does not work for JJ's use case because it's just too many cron jobs running. Um, but this is what we did for the customer. <coughs> And then we, we used this pattern that I, like previously I said, it's, it's a kind of, you have to be careful when using this pattern. We use a step function that executes itself because the step function execution is limited to one year. And they had cron jobs that basically were running kind of forever. So we made sure that they like every year they kind of renew themselves and this is super hard to test and everything because i mean you cannot really wait for one year to see if it actually works so you have to tweak uh, all the the settings and and see uh, that it works properly and you have to be careful of the history events limit and all these things and it's it's complicated so maybe andreas you have a better idea <laughs> <laughs> so 
Uh, also funny story, I've implemented something like this as well. <laughs> so <laughs> it is, I think it is, it was at the very beginning of uh, this whole serverless thing. So I don't know, uh, four years, five years ago, I don't know, remember exactly. And um, actually the, the issue was the same. So I, um, the thing was um, um, we had a, a huge list of cron jobs um, that should um, that should be yeah, uh, triggered um, and what I ended up is I created I don't I don't recommend that at all I, this was an implementation I did many years ago I wouldn't recommend it but just how I solved it I had a Dynamo I basically had a Dynamo DB table with all the Chrome jobs and as far as I remember I had uh, let me let me think about it I had some thing that I had a way to use a sort key to get um, the only the cron shops that I need um, to run um, in an iteration. And then I had a Lambda function that was called by an event bridge rule. I think, I don't know, every minute or something. And this was just going through the list and only through the parts of the list from DynamoDB and I was scanning through, are there any jobs that I need to run? Because basically I used something like, um, uh, I calculated the, the, the timestamp when the job needs to run and basically, I just sorted the list by uh, by this timestamp. This was, I think, the implementation. And yeah, the Lambda function was just every minute checking if there were any any um, jobs, basically, in the DynamoDB table. And then um, um, the, the Lambda function was triggering um, either Fargate jobs um, or other Lambda functions that were then executing the, the workload. Um, but yeah. Uh, I don't. I think it's it scaled quite well to the extent that I needed it. It was a few thousand uh, Chrome jobs, when I remember it correctly. Uh, I'm not sure if that would s uh, scale to millions of Chrome jobs. Maybe not. And it had <laughs> some other issues. So, yeah, I think that's the best one uh, I came up with uh, over the past years. But I never <laughs> get a um, totally. Um, um, yeah, totally fine solution for that that I'm proud of. <coughs> yeah, but I think the good news here is that um, for JJ is that it, I, I don't think that you will find anyone to kind of draft you a solution for this in, in five minutes because it's a, it's a <laughs> bigger problem <laughs> to solve. Maybe, for maybe there's someone who has solved it. So. <laughs> but we are definitely not towards. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Very good question. But maybe like if, you, if you find an answer to that problem or if you come up with a solution that actually works then then please reach out to us and 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 share that with with us so we have like this this um, <laughs> kind of uh, share your architecture thing uh, where we write about architectures in aws um from aws users and and this would be very interesting so um, feel free to reach out to us uh, once this is working okay michael this was a lot of fun so this was the first the first try um, with our weekly show hot of the cloud we had a lot of aw news we had lessons learned we had questions uh, from you, the community. I think this is really great. We will be back next week. Great. Thank you. Bye.